Welcome to the Choose to Be podcast. Thanks for joining us. Where healing begins with you, and we're here to support you along the way. Welcome to the Choose to Be podcast. You're here today with Alana Gordon. Amy is not with us today. So Amy, as always, we miss you. And for the rest of you listening and hanging out with me today, I was thinking about what would be a helpful topic. And one thing that comes up a lot is the question of why is this so hard? Why is this so traumatic? Logically, we can think about this and we know that, yes, this should be difficult, but a lot of individuals who are going through betrayal are shocked and overwhelmed at how much this impacts them and seems to impact every single aspect of their life. And so I thought today would be a good day to just go back to some of the basics on why betrayal is so traumatic for us. So we're going to break this down into three main areas on why betrayal is so traumatic. And this comes from the work of the multi-dimensional partners trauma healing APSADs. It comes from their model of trauma work and it also comes through some of the work of Michelle Mays. And then work from just trauma professionals and my own individual work as a therapist. So you're going to get a little bit of all of those things pulled together, but let's start with looking at the three main areas that trauma impacts. And those are, we have an attachment injury, we have a psychological and emotional injury, and we have a sexual injury. When we go through infidelity, betrayal, or sexual addiction. Now, when we look at the attachment injury, I think it's always most important to start with the attachment injury because this is why at its core, it is so incredibly damaging and why it impacts us as deep as it impacts us. So to be able to really look at that, we have to go back all the way into just general attachment theory and look at what attachment does to us as human beings. So for a minute, we're going to take your significant other out of the picture and we're going to rewind time back to when you came to this planet earth and you're this tiny little baby. When a human baby is born, if they do not have parents or caregivers to take care of them, to help them, to protect them, to feed them, to nurture them, they will die. And not only will they die, but they need that parent to be attentive and take care of their needs for years. You look at the animal kingdom and how long each species has to stay with their caregiver and it varies across the board but humans need their parents or a caregiver for the longest amount of time you look at like just basic stay alive and we're looking at three to four years but then there are so many needs beyond that there's a reason why kids live at home generally until 18 years old and sometimes longer is because there's this long period of nurturing and needing that attachment figure to lead and guide and help and protect and keep you alive. So because we need that attachment figure to be able to keep us alive, we have it hardwired in the survival part of our brain to be able to give cues to this person to help them stay with us. And we try to do whatever we can to maintain that attachment 
in essence, to be able to stay alive. So this is connected to the survival part of our brain. Now, when we come to this planet and we're little babies, we need that for survival, but it's not like we just grow out of our attachment. That attachment goes with us into adulthoods and our primary attachments change where it may be mom and dad as a little infant who we get into a relationship later with, who is our significant other, they become our primary attachment. The attachment part of our brain is, it's a motivational system, meaning that it is connected to our primal instincts and it's instinctual. It's built into us. So it's not something that you think about. It's not something of, hey, I choose, I want this attachment. It is something that is hardwired into our bodies. So when we are betrayed by the person who in essence is supposed to be there that we can turn to, who will protect us and take care of, when that person betrays you, that person who is supposed to be there according to our attachment as the one to protect, and then they're the ones that our brain registers as danger, you can see how that can at a very deep level really impact us because that survival part of our brain that registers danger. And then the person that we want to turn to also becomes the person we want to run from. And this is where we get this attachment ambivalence. This is where it gets really hard and really confusing because now we have two drives that are working against each other. We have an instinctual drive to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe. So that the fight, flight, or freeze that says danger, protect yourself, that's activated when we go through betrayal. But at the same time, we still have this attachment drive that says turn to and reach for this person who is your primary attachment to stay safe. And so we have this push and pull of these two drives that are working against each other. And this alone can make a betrayed partner feel crazy. Because I want to turn to you and I want you to hold me. And at the same time, I want to push you away. I have so many spouses who find this in particular really confusing because they'll say one minute, my partner is crying and wanting me to hold them and hug them. And the next minute they're pushing me away and they're angry and they're saying, I hate you. And then I feel like the next minute they're saying, why don't you love me? And why aren't you coming to me? And that push and pull has to do with these primary drives this deep level of attachment. So we have this attachment injury and to heal an attachment injury compared to other emotional injuries, because it goes down to these really deep primary instinctual drives. It's not something that's just an apology. I'm so sorry is going to heal. We have this deep, almost this chasm, this grand canyon of an injury that we're going to have to learn how to go into that injury and navigate through it and then climb out of it to get to the other side. In the ITAP training, those who become CSAT certified sexual addiction therapist, they throw out a number where they say, on average, it takes about three to five years of active healing to move through healing from sexual addiction. And it's funny because that number can be so hard and so triggering for individuals. And and it's different for those who have betrayed that three to five years. A lot of times they're going, are you kidding me? 
three to five years, like I, I thought this was a 12 step program, maybe a few months. I'm going to be in therapy and groups and trying to heal for three to five years. And I say, yeah, this work is not for the faint of heart. Are you in it for the long haul? And that can feel really scary and daunting and overwhelming, but you don't eat an elephant at one time. It's one bite at a time. And that's what we're going to be doing through this journey. And then when it becomes to be trade partners, I feel like that number of three to five years can be so damaging because healing from betrayal is so complex and multi-layered, and it looks so different from individual to individual because it looks different based off of our individual healing. It looks different on how much safety is created relationally. It um, has a difference of whether they've had past abuse or not. It makes a difference of what kind of support system they have in place, what type of internal resources are already there, what type of internal resources we are building. And if I have a betrayed partner who everything comes out, they have this big D-day, this disclosure day, discovery day, destruction day, whatever D you want to add to that, they have this day where everything falls apart. If they have a partner who came forward and said, I am ready to change, here it all is. And at that point, that partner really steps into recovery work. They're not recovered, but they start into this recovery work and they're really moving forward and they're stepping away from lying and they're stepping away from the manipulation and the hiding and the gaslighting. Then for the partner who has been betrayed, their healing is going to look different than having somebody where we have this big explosion, the partner who was acting out of their values and acting out of the vows and promises that were made relationally, when that partner isn't ready to change, they're still lying. They're still hiding. They're still trying to fight through this, but not having the type of success they want, or they're not even trying. The, that partner is going to have more and more trauma as they go along. There's a term we talk about, and, and you can listen to this in past episodes where we talk about how betrayal, a lot of partners, uh, like 74% of partners who go through betrayal have symptoms of PTSD. But I feel like PTSD doesn't quite hit it right because PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, Notice that word post, meaning it happened in the past and I'm having triggers from the past that make it feel like my present. But in this case, this incorporates our past and all the things that we didn't know that we're trying to understand and figure out are present today. Often there's still continual lying. There's still continual hiding. There's your partner who's living in shame and through those shame responses, still acting outside of their values, there's a term of acting out, like going outside of your values with other people or doing other things outside of your values. Or there's this term of acting in, which is those things that are done internally and emotionally that are still damaging. 
And you have the past, the things that have already been done, but then you're in trauma today. And there's still things happening today that aren't creating safety. And then there's this big fear of the future, the big fear of what if, can they change? Should I stay? Should I go? What if I stay and then they go back to acting out? What if I leave and then they change and then somebody else gets a better version? There's so many unknowns of the future that can send a partner spinning. So the PTSD, while those symptoms do fit, it doesn't encompass the full scope of what maybe trade partners are going through because we're looking at past, present, and future impacts. So we really have to know and understand that. Another thing with the attachment injury is there's this part of our brain with attachment that sends us this message of I live together or I die alone. Back when humans were nomads just roaming the earth, when you were part of a community, you were safe. But if you were kicked out of that community or you lost the community, you were at great danger for your survival. So again, we have another layer of why this is connected, this attachment is connected so much to the survival part of our brain. Anytime that we are not connected with our significant other, it causes us distress. It causes our attachment distress. So this is something that I'll hear partners say a lot. And I, and this is both sides of when we're not okay, I'm not okay. And there's this idea sometimes as we do this recovery work that if I really work on myself as an individual, then I will get to this place that I am so good and I am so confident on my own that even if my spouse is in a really tough spot, it's cool. I'm okay. I'll be okay. And it's not going to bother me or distress me. But unfortunately, with the way that our brains and our bodies are hardwired is when there is that distress or that disconnection between us and our primary attachment, there is distress in our system. And then what we do with that distress really shows what is healthy or what is not. So the ideal is not to get to this place where I have zero distress because that's not how our brains are hardwired. It's when I feel this distress, then I will. So I think I'm going to stop there for now. That really is in essence, just a high level overview of the attachment injury. Okay. So let's take a look at the emotional and the psychological injuries. Now there's many ways that we can be emotionally and psychologically injured, but the one that I really want to hone in on and focus on is when there are secretive behaviors that are happening behind you, there is a really confusing experience that happens around what is my reality and what is not, what was my reality and what is not. From the book, The Betrayal Bind, and this is Michelle Mays, she says that the emotional and psychological injuries is the confusing experience of being lied to, manipulated, coerced, and intimidated by the cheating partner in their efforts to protect their secret behavior. And, and this one's interesting around this the cheating partner's efforts to protect their secret behavior. Because I see sometimes a very overt effort of a cheating partner to hide and lie and protect with very little regard for how it impacts others. And they're very aware of what they're doing. I also see cheating partners 
who don't believe that what they are doing is emotionally abusive. They are lying and hiding, but they truly believe it's in an effort to protect their spouse, even though it is self-protection. And they believe that it's not harming anyone, but it is. Whether or not somebody knows, whether or not they are aware of it's been happening, they are being injured and being impacted because that lying, manipulation, coercion, all of those maladaptive self-protective behaviors are being used to change the reality or what appears to be the reality of the betrayed partner. And that over time can be so damaging. It can destroy a sense of self-trust. It can destroy an individual's ability to be able to trust their own tuition and their own gut. Because when they say, hey, I'm feeling this, and then the betrayed partner has all the right words to explain why what they're feeling isn't accurate, it sends this message of, oh, well, maybe I was thinking wrong. Maybe I didn't quite get that right. This plays into a lot of the term betrayal blindness. With betrayal blindness, and I like this better than the word denial, because I feel like denial holds a level of shame with it and you're doing something wrong. But with betrayal blindness, it's this, I want so bad to be able to stay connected to this person. Because remember, when I'm disconnected, there's a lot of distress there. And so I want so bad to stay connected to this person, but if I'm staying connected to them, but I'm also seeing these things over here that are scaring me and that I'm unsure about, then I can't feel safe and connected to them, but they're assuring me that everything is okay. So either I trust my gut and I have all of this pain and distress because I can't be connected to them, or I believe what they say. And then the distress goes away and I can feel a comfort. Therefore, I go into this place of betrayal blindness. With time, going to this over and over again, again, creates that lack of self-trust. It creates a distrust with the rest of the world. It creates distrust with our partner. It creates depression, anxiety, our nervous system gets so dysregulated. And I think dysregulation, emotional dysregulation is one of the number one effects of betrayal. Even before we know that something is happening, we start to get emotionally dysregulated. But then especially once this information comes out and all of a sudden, everything that I thought I believed isn't accurate. And all of these things that I've been pushing down now make sense, but they don't make sense. And then I have this attachment ambivalence of this pull towards and run away. And so here we are now in this emotional turmoil. Now we have this emotional dysregulation and we have these psychological injuries that, that often have been present for a long time, but now they're very acute and very amplified. One of the tasks that I'll talk about in just a minute of when we're healing from all of this, that one of the first things we need to do is just get stabilized that there is this devastation period. And then we move into this realization of what is reality. And then it becomes, how do I get stabilized? But we'll go into those in a little bit, a little bit deeper later. 
Now, the third type of injury that we do not talk nearly enough. I feel like with this podcast at some point this year, we need to do a whole series of all of the ins and outs of this. And that's the sexual injury. Uh, it cuts so deep because it takes all of that attachment. It takes all of the emotional and psychological injuries. And then we go into this deep level of intimacy. And if you have shared this intimacy, you believed only with this one person and they shared that only with you to realize that this deep, sacred, intimate, vulnerable part of you has been shared elsewhere. That injury can cut really deep. Going back to Michelle May's book, where she talks about the sexual injury. I'm just going to read what she says here. She says, what is the least addressed topic with when dealing with sexual betrayal? The topic that is often left completely out of couples therapy, the topic that gets almost no focus in addiction treatment, that topic betrayed partners can hardly find a book or article about sex. Even though the betrayal is sexual in nature, and cuts to the core of trust and in intimacy, there are limited resources and little focus on the way betrayal impacts a couple's sexual relationship. And if those resources are scarce, it's even rarer to find information that addresses the impact of cheating on the sexuality of the betrayed partner specifically. This leaves betrayed partners without a clear path for healing the sexual wounds created by the intimate betrayal. And just Michelle, yes, that is a hundred percent of what I'm seeing. The sexual injury impacts that betrayed partner at the very core where a lot of times there's meanings and messages that our brain will try to make about us. If I was just, why wasn't I, could I have been all of those meaning making about ourselves that Often we have to unravel doing our own individual work, whether through therapy or through journaling and groups and processing, being able to look at some of those pieces. There's also an element of shame that comes. It could be often it's a shame that could come from our own upbringing and our own messages around sexuality that will play into it for sure. But I also see often a shared shame or a misplaced shame of our spouse. They did this to me, therefore it means that I am. And so there's this carried shame that often around their sexuality that can really damage how they see themselves and experience themselves as a sexual being. Then we look at the relationship and it is so common for a betrayed partner who wants to be intimate again, when they go into that experience, the amount of triggers and the amount of thoughts that come that all of a sudden, and when that all of a sudden just hijack their brain and hijack their system and they go into this fight, flight, or freeze. So if you've been betrayed and you're listening to this, I guarantee you can relate to this at some level is you decide I would really like to be intimate with my partner. And so we go into this experience and we start being close with each other. And all of a sudden my brain remembers, oh wait, he thought about somebody else or he was with somebody else or did he do this or did he do that? Or did they look at somebody like this? 
And all of a sudden those thoughts start going through our brain and then our body and brain get triggered and we go into that fight, flight, or freeze. But the thing is, is when we go into that fight, flight, or freeze, our brain and our body go from being in that prefrontal cortex and that logical part of our brain, and it moves into that survival part of our brain. And at that point, all of that reproductive functioning gets shut down as part of that survival. What do we do? We have two choices. Do I just power through, which for a lot of individuals, that's the message they've been given. It's not okay to stop by the way it is. But we get this message of, I just have to keep going. I just have to power through. I, I started it, therefore I have to finish it. And so we just try to power through. But at that point, we are literally betraying our body because our body has shut everything down saying you're not safe. So I power through, I have now betrayed myself. I have caused more damage to myself and potentially more damage to the relationship. So that's one option that, that a lot of partners choose. Another option is we just stop. I am triggered. This is upsetting. I stop. I, we just have to go away, which sometimes we do need to do that. But if every time that we're triggered sexually, we just stop with time. I And I see this so often in couples, we create this greater and greater and greater divide. And then our brain registers having sexual experiences as strangers and it gets harder and harder to come back from that. And often partners feel like these are my only choices. I either power through and we do it or I stop but then like, how, when are we ever going to be intimate? How is this going to work? And a lot of times partners have this idea in their mind of, okay, I just stop. But when I feel safe and I feel safe enough, then the sexual injured part of our relationship can be healed. So I just need to feel safe enough. But the problem with that type of thinking is that our brain is never going to just automatically feel safe. And so there's this hard, messy ground of this sexual injury and healing that of learning how to work through that period on how to honor the triggers and how to be able to be present with ourselves and let our significant other create comfort in the middle of that experience, which may mean we are comforted and we do stop. Or we are comforted as the, the, the betraying partner is able to do, or we are comforted and then we're able to try again and keep going. But that injury to be able to do or not do the very act of letting ourselves be seen at this deeper, more emotional level can be so incredibly scary. And so that sexual injury goes to the heart of all of our betrayal. It brings in all of the attachments, all of the emotional, and it brings in that physical body. And so we have to be able to tend to that sexual injury. And I have couples who want to just bypass that of let's just focus on all the emotional injuries, the attachment that will come. This is what they believe that will come. Let's just focus on the emotional and sexual will just come. But each one of these areas will need healing along the journey.
Now, the question becomes how then, Alana, you have talked about all these injuries and it's so depressing and there's so many ways I've been injured. So how do I actually heal from this? And that's what I want to talk about. Healing happens individually and relationally. The old model of healing. I want to say the old model of healing, but it's funny how I've watched the model change over time of what really is best practices. So before we really understood that B-trail trauma was a trauma, it was very much focused of get you straight into couples. We'll do couples work and we'll figure out why one partner's not happy and why the other's not happy. And we'll just put a bandaid on it and move forward and send you on your way and hope you're good. That type of couples work, which is still being done by some professionals out there, is very damaging. So we moved more into this trauma model where we went, oh, this is a traumatic injury. We need to address the injury so we can heal. But then it moved more into, okay, we need to just heal as individuals. And then we can come back to the couple, which there is some truth to the fact that individuals need healing. So one individual needs a healing, another individual needs a healing, and then the relationship needs a healing. That is accurate and true. But there is this idea that these two individuals each need to go over to their little islands and heal, and they can wave to each other or talk to each other, but really they just need the space and they need to heal till it's safe enough to come together and do the couple's emotional healing together. What we are learning, the more that we have research and the more that we understand attachment, we're realizing that attachment injuries heal best with attachment healing. And that does not always have to mean your significant other has to be the one to help you heal, but that sure does make a difference in the helping and having a team and individuals and a support system around to help heal us is going to be really important. I love, I was listening to a webinar recently by Dr. Jake Porter, where he was talking about healing couples. And he said that we actually have to have connection, just a basic level of connection to be able to move more into the healing work. And so many people think we have to do the healing work to have basic levels of connection, but we actually have to be able to learn how to step into that connection. I see these couples who move apart and get so focused on their little islands and doing their healing work that they get so far apart that they don't know how to come back together. And so we want to have these bridges and be able to build. Now I'm saying this as it is safe to do. So if we have emotional abuse, where it is a very much a power over, and we have manipulation and we have control that are actively happening, then it will not be safe to do emotional couples work. But where we have some sense of stability and we have enough safety to do some basic level early couples work, that is going to be really important that we build that in. That will never initially, when we start couples work, feel good. And our brain so bad wants safety that anything that feels somewhat uncomfortable, our brain tends to be wanting to run away and get away from because it is very hyper vigilant to danger. And so 
doing that early couples recovery work will require some level of discomfort. And I say that very gently because for my betrayed partners, that can be really scary to lean into that. This is where you really have to trust your gut and intuition. Because even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of different couples where I'm thinking of some where I'm like, oh no, it is not time to do couples work because there are some really important pieces that are not in place of basic levels of safety to do couples work. And then I have others who want so much safety created that they will not even look at couples work until everything around them feels perfectly safe. And the problem is it will never feel perfectly safe. That safety is created as we look at the hard and we face the hard together. Going back to, to Jake Porter, he said that couples need to get to this place where they can move from fighting against each other to fighting side by side towards a common goal. So we are going to fight together to figure out how to heal. We are going to fight together to move from our pain because the reality is we have two injured people who are trying to navigate this. And so balancing out that individual healing and that relational healing can be really complex and it can feel scary. So my advice here is make sure that you're working with a professional who understands not only betrayal trauma through the trauma model, but also understands what that early couples recovery work looks like versus the typical couples work. And, and just really quick to explain that, the early couples recovery work really is about how do each partner see each other? How does a partner who betrayed really learn how to be able to see their own shame, but still be able to hold and make space for and hear and understand their partner's hurt, which is very challenging and very difficult to do. Some of the hardest emotional work you'll ever do. When we move through that and we're ready and we're doing more traditional couples work, then it's more of a balance of what is partner A experiencing and what, are, what is partner B experiencing? And let's put both of our experiences side by side together. So six stages of healing. I'm just going to give these a brief overview of six main ways or stages we can heal from betrayal trauma. The first one is the devastation phase. And in that devastation phase, we are coping with the initial crisis of betrayal. And in that beginning stage, it really is about just functioning. There is the shock. There is the, I can't believe this is my reality trying to make sense of it and trying to put one foot in front of the other. It is just that devastation period. The next period we move into is more of the realization where we confront the impacts and the dynamics of the betrayal. So in that re realization period, it's really just trying to figure out what is truth. What is my reality? This is where I highly recommend doing a full disclosure especially with the support of a trained professional. And there's a lot of professionals. I do them through Choose Recovery Services, but I am not the end-all be-all. There are lots of professionals out there who are doing full disclosures. Just please make sure 
that they are partner sensitive and ask them to show you the steps of what a full disclosure looks like with them. You can go back to one of Amy and I's earlier episodes where we go through our full disclosures. We also have my favorite polygraph examiner come on. I want to say in an episode before or after that, and he talks about the polygraph as part of that formal disclosure process. And that all of that is part of that realization period. Then we move into more of the stabilization. When we're in that stabilization period, we are moving from powerlessness to empowerment. And think about that. Think about that term, like how beautiful that is. When everything happens, I didn't choose this. It all happened to me. I'm trying to make sense of it. I feel powerless. There's so many things I can't control. But then we start to learn where we actually do have power and where we have a voice and where we can protect ourselves and where we can have boundaries. And so as we move into that stabilization, we start learning that there's ways that we can take care of ourselves and there's ways that we can help to, to start to heal and to help benefit our relationship. Then once we move through the stabilization and we carry that with us, it's not that we become unstabilized, but we move through stabilization into the reimagining. That reimagining is a reclaiming and a nurturing of our core self. Trauma has a way of disconnecting our, us. And so there is this beautiful period where we can begin to reimagine and reclaim and start stepping back into who we are. And for a lot of women that I work with, these women have become so, I'm trying to think of the right word, just through living life, often through their work and careers or their mothering, or just doing all the things that are required in our society to survive, have already also lost a sense of themselves. Then they go through the trauma and there's this huge, down to the core of who am I? What do I like? What do I want? What does my future look like? These questions that seemed so tangible only weeks or months before feel so lost and abstract and hard to access. And that all is part of the trauma. So there's this period of this moving from this powerlessness into this empowerment and this reclaiming period. Now, the next one after that is the creating. So you can see how we move from this reimagining into the creating, where we're recreating a new love and relationship with ourselves and with others. And that work of rebuilding our self-esteem, learning how to love ourselves, really leaning into that self-compassion and that grace is such a beautiful process. I love when the women I work with get to these later stages because it's so rewarding. And the last one is the flourishing, which is the nurturing and cultivating the authentic hope. And I love the word authentic hope because early in our recovery, I often see hope, but hope isn't necessarily built in reality. It's a hope sometimes built in and just a fantasy or what we want. But this authentic hope is this hope that's based in reality. It's a hope based in us having been able to move into this empowerment 
and move out of powerlessness and be able to start tapping into that core and our inner self. And then that authentic hope helps move us forward to the life that we really do want to create. And all of these steps, they can happen within or without of a relationship. But I love you think about that. We move from devastation to flourishing. Now, does this happen overnight? Oh, I wish it did. For every one of my clients and myself included, when I went through this, I wish it was instant. But this is a journey and healing takes as long as it's going to take. I, I won't ever put a timeline on what this healing looks like. And so often healing can feel two steps forward and one step back. And so as you're going through and wherever you are, whether it be devastation, realization, stabilization, reimagining creativity or flourishing, wherever you are, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You have had some great injury, but just because you've had these injuries does not mean you have to stay injured. When we break a bone and it's like we break a leg bone, we just don't go, oh, my leg's broken. Bummer. I'm just going to hope it goes away. No, we go and we do what we need to do. We realize we may have the shock of, I just broke my leg. The realization of, oh, I met her, go get some help. Here's what I need to do. Then we go in and we stabilize. We get stabilized and we move forward and we heal. And healing is absolutely possible from betrayal trauma. When you're in the beginning, it doesn't feel like it. When you're in the depths of triggers and pain and trauma in your brains and fight, flight, or freeze, so much it can feel like, I cannot see a way out of this darkness. I can't see a way out of this hole. But there absolutely is a way out. There's a way forward. And you, even sitting here listening to this, you're on that path forward. So if you're not ready to trust yourself that you can do this, trust me, you can listen to my voice that you have this. You have done other hard things in your life. You are doing hard. The fact that you are here and you're alive and you're listening to this, you are doing hard. And so starting to practice this belief of I can do hard things. I can put one foot in front of the other. And as you trust this process, as you keep moving forward in your healing, you will help. I don't know what your relationship will look like. That relational aspect do take two people. A relationship takes two people doing the work to heal, but you on your own can impact in good ways. You on your own can heal and move forward. So I hope that with all of this, that you can remember that within you is a warrior. There is a warrior in there who can heal and move forward. And I am cheering you on. There is nobody else in this world I would rather rub shoulders with than those who have done and are doing this type of work because those are the strongest people I've ever met. So keep going. I'm cheering you on. Thank you for hanging out with me this week. And as always, I look forward to seeing you all next week.